Tonight, The View's Sunny Holston weighs in on the hot topics New Yorkers are talking about. What the former prosecutor and Bronx native is saying about immigration, gentrification, and the mental health crisis. Then, start spreading the news. The stars of New York, New York, the hit Tony-nominated musical making a brand new start of it, joins us as Broadway Week on Metro Focus continues, starting right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Hi, I'm Jenna Flanagan. As co-host of the popular talk show, The View, Sunny Holston weighs in on some of the most controversial national issues of the day, and she doesn't hold back. But we don't often get to hear the Bronx native's thoughts on the issues impacting her hometown, New York City. Until now. Huston grew up in a housing project in the South Bronx with her Puerto Rican mother and African-American father, an experience she chronicled in her best-selling 2020 memoir, I Am These Truths, a book that launched a national conversation around race, identity, and social justice. The former federal prosecutor turned journalist has a lot to say about what goes on in and around the city. From immigration to the mental health crisis and homelessness to gentrification, she's also a New York Times bestselling author, once again, finding local inspiration for her beach reading novel, Summer on Sag Harbor, set in a historically Black beach community on Long Island. And she joins me now. Welcome to Metro Focus, Sunny. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Jen. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so first I wanted to get into uh, the book that you had written before and talking just about um, diving into those complex narratives of intersectionality, a word that we now use quite regularly, but um, what that process was like writing that book for you and unpacking all of those different parts of your identity. The memoir was tough, actually. You know, I, I always thought fiction would be more difficult. That is not true. I know from experience. Um, as a journalist, you know, when you make yourself the subject, it's already uncomfortable. And when you're writing a memoir about, in particular, identity, um, people have a lot of views on it, uh, including my own mother, who sort of snuck a copy, an advanced copy, and was upset with how I remembered things. And so um, I found it to be difficult to broach a lot of the topics um, that I broached, but I, I did it to start conversations that I think we need to have. I mean, conversations that we have every day on The View, but that our country still remains uncomfortable about. Uh, what is identity? How do you see yourself? How do you assign value to yourself? And, and you know, what I always say is you get to determine who you are. No one else gets to do that. And um, but I, I will say, you know, it was difficult to, to write. Oh. I will not write any more memoirs. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> um, this is such a my sort of 
kneeled me into into writing this memoir, uh, both in English and in Spanish. And I'm I'm happy I did it, but I I I, I prefer fiction. Okay, so definitely a one and done situation. I think so. <laughs> I mean, it, was great that it was a bestseller, and it was great that that so many people read in, um, and it did start honest conversations about identity and about social justice um, and about uh, uh, poverty. Well, you know, speaking of uh, that part of your childhood uh, identity, your childhood journey of growing up poor and living in housing projects, um, I'm wondering if you could take us to how you at least see the city's current housing crisis. Uh, There's so many challenges that uh, working class blue collar New Yorkers are facing and just being able to stay in the city that they love, that they've made so vibrant and that they also work in. I think it's it's really terrible what is happening. I mean, I understand gentrification. I think that can actually be a good thing uh, for many communities. But what I don't um agree with is displacement. And I, mm-hmm. and I think, unfortunately, that's what we're seeing, um, especially in New York, but also around the country. You have communities like the African-American community that really built up um, New York in, in many respects. You know, you had the Great Migration and you had these Black folks that came to New York um, to start families, to build families, to, to grow in communities like Harlem. And now you're seeing not only gentrification, you're seeing displacement. I think, mm-hmm. I don't remember the statistic, but I think um, in the past couple of years, you've had an exodus of black families and and the flavor is different um, when you sort of walk around. I mean, I was very surprised to visit Harlem recently and uh, it's changed. Um, and I'm not sure that the, you know, that that robust community is there. And uh, I visit the South Bronx often because I'm on the board of the Bronx children's community. And I see the same thing. People that made the community what it is have been displaced. And and that's problematic. Of course, of course. Um, And displacement, unfortunately, can add to not necessarily in every situation, but it can add to uh, people finding themselves uh, houseless or without a steady place to live. And we also know that the homeless crisis um, is growing exponentially in New York City. And I'm wondering, again, from your perspective, how you see that being addressed? Is this just an ongoing problem that will always be part of New York? Or is this something that if we band together, we can actually make a difference? There's no question that we can make a difference. Um, You know, we have other uh, states sending um, migrants to to New York and 50% of the hotels are filled with migrant families and they are looking for work and they are getting services. And, um, you know, I think New York is a very welcoming place, but I, uh, unbeknownst to, to some people, but, but I, I will also say that, um, we don't do enough. We, we don't do enough, uh, for those that find themselves without homes for families that don't find themselves, that find themselves without homes, for people that are suffering from mental health, there are no services for for those folks. And you know, if we can spend five billion dollars a year on policing in New York, I don't understand why we can't spend a commiserate amount on housing uh, for those that find themselves without. Why we can't spend uh, some money on mental health services, which are sorely needed in this city. Um, why we can't spend more money on education and arts programs uh, in our public schools. You know, it seems to me that rather than policing, 
mm-hmm. we should be helping these communities thrive and grow. And um, I, I'm saddened by the lack of resources that are funneled into those buckets. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that always seems to come up is that whenever there's some sort of a crisis, especially uh, when it comes to an outburst of violence or perceived violence, that the subject of mental health comes up. But at the same time, it doesn't seem clear as to exactly who's supposed to be responsible. Um, Even from my perspective as a local journalist, it seems as if there's a lot of political hot potato. Well, it's not the city's job, it's the state job. Well, it's not state job, it's the federal job. from your perspective, I guess, taking maybe a 3,000 foot view, mm-hmm. who do you see as being responsible? Where does the buck stop and who needs to actually step in and make sure that we can provide something yeah. as critical as mental health services? Well, a couple a couple of things, uh, a couple of ways to approach this. I mean, we know that when it comes to violence, that those that are mentally ill really are generally the folks that are the recipients of violence rather than committing violence. I mean, this is a statistic. And so I'm always um, concerned when I hear uh, people in this country blame mental illness for violence. That Mm -hmm. is generally not the case. I mean, with the case uh, that we saw on the subway system recently, you know, the, the, the gentleman that was mentally ill, that was telling his fellow citizens, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I don't feel a reason to live. That is someone that is asking for help. Um, however, he was met with violence, right? And and murdered in my view. So I, I think that it's a multi-pronged um, issue, multifactorial issue. And I think everyone needs to help. I think we can do more federally in terms of um, medical care. I mean, we do mm-hmm. have the Affordable Care Act, but it seems to me that whenever uh, the government has a shot at it, they sort of, again, don't fund mental health services. It's it's terribly misunderstood. I think New York State has to do a much better job um, of, of providing programs for those that are especially houseless and also mentally ill. And I think the city has to do a much better job. I mean, you know, we have interviewed um, the mayor mm-hmm. uh, And I know that he would disagree, but again, some of the money that is funneled to policing um, in the city and the five boroughs needs to be funneled to mental health services. Because when I was a federal prosecutor, I mean, I know the uh, the local Metropolitan Police Department in DC used to call them EDPs, you know, emotionally disturbed persons. And they did not want to respond to situations involving EDPs. They wanted to really concentrate on crime. They wanted, uh, and definitely felony level crimes. And they were called often to deal with family issues, dealing with mental health. Why can't we then address that issue? The cops don't even necessarily wanna respond to those issues, nor are they trained to respond to those issues. Why don't we have some sort of mental health response team that responds to a situation like the one that was on the train? There have been um, states like in Ohio and Cleveland that have specialized units that are filled with mental health professionals that go to these scenes and they have made a difference in terms of the outcome for for these citizens and also in terms of the mental health care. I don't understand again, why a city that has so many resources, so much money, if we're being honest, doesn't know how to take care of this. 
Of course. Well, that is such an important conversation to have. And so, Sunny, I would really want to thank you for giving such a robust and thoughtful answer. Sure. But I do want to pivot um, because we have about two minutes <laughs> left. But also, you have a new book out called Summer mm -hmm. on Sag Harbor. And yeah. so for people who, well, I can't imagine, I mean, our show airs <laughs> on LIW, but tell us a little bit about why, what makes this book um, stand out, let's say, amongst other summer reads? Yeah, you know, I will say it's based in history. It's historical fiction, which is something that I love so very much. Um, I love a good beach read, but I like an elevated beach read. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized that there were places in this country of Black excellence that we don't focus upon, that quite frankly, people don't know about. And I think you can also... Um, start discussions about these difficult issues if you place them in a really beautiful place. Right? <laughs> and so for me, I wanted to center stories on um, black and brown folks around women, around older women as well, which is a demographic that we forget even exists sometimes. Um, and I wanted to center those stories and those relationships. And I wanted to also place them in his historically black beach communities, HBBCs, which, um, you know, these three places are federally recognized as historical black beach communities. And Sag Harbor is a place close to my heart because black folks have been summering there since the 1940s. And you have a group of civil servants and nurses and teachers and doctors and lawyers that pooled money together to buy beachfront property, which at the time wasn't desirable because it was on the bay and it wasn't on the ocean. Oh. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful community with generational wealth, um, which is something that I talk about often. And people don't know about it. I found out about it maybe a little over 20 years ago because Barbara Smith, who used to own B. Smith Restaurant, invited me to Sag Harbor. And she had That's quite the invite. <laughs> it was quite the invite. She was sort of the black Martha Stewart. But um, Barbara invited me and I was amazed at this incredible community that I discovered. And I've been summering there ever since. Of course, of course. And very quickly before we're out, uh, when does this book take place? What's important time? Uh, it takes place in the current day because I was writing during the pandemic mm -hmm. and I really felt like, wow, I can't ignore what New Yorkers are going through. And I wanted to relive not only the pain that we went through, because many people know, you know, I lost many family members um, from COVID, mm -hmm. but also the gelling of so many communities, people were looking after each other and um, I couldn't ignore that. So it takes place during the pandemic. It's not all sad. It's actually very joyful in many respects. And it, um, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I was surprised, uh, I'll admit, because sequels rarely hit the New York Times bestseller list, um, but this one did. So I'm I'm really thrilled that the first book did and this one did. And I'm, I'm just happy at the reception that uh, the book has received. All right. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to leave it on um, and a beautiful setting that I'm thinking of right now. But Sunny, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. What better title for a new Broadway musical than New York, New York? Inspired by the iconic song written by composers John Kander and Fred Ebb for the 1977 Martin Scorsese film of the same name, this new musical with nine Tony nominations brings together two generations of Broadway legends, 
It features a score by Candor and Ebb, as well as additional lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Let's take a look. Little dreams, little life. Big dreams, big life. Fortune cookie? No, my daddy. Oh, smart daddy. Come on. Come through New York. New York. Don't bet against New York. And joining us now to talk about this marvelous musical are the stars Colton Ryan, Anna Uzella, and Emily Skinner. Welcome to all of you. So glad to have you with us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so we were talking before we started running here. My wife and I saw the show, and it was it was just spectacular. And you were all so good. I mentioned um, nine Tony nominations here, all so well-deserved. I've got a question I want to ask each of you, and and that's because this is a a project I mentioned in the introduction based very, very loosely on the 1977 film New York, New York, Martin Scorsese, um, uh, Robert De Niro, Liza Minnelli. So as an actor, when someone presents you with a new project and they say, this is all new, musical, but it's kind of connected to something that was out there and got a lot of attention. Attention is that a, a daunting prospect for you in any way? And and I'll start with you. We'll kind of work our way the boxes here. What do you think about it? Surprisingly, not. I think it's only daunting if there is an expectation to fill those shoes. And with this project, there wasn't. I think I'd be missing out if I didn't experience the magic that Liza brought us. So of course I went right to the movie to see what she did and see what she gave. But she was fully herself and she allowed me to be that as well. And there has been no expectation for me to be Liza or inhabit her shoes in any capacity, but only to bring myself to the project. So right. it only helped, I think. Yeah. Colton, how about you? Again, Robert De Niro, uh, the legendary character. As I said, very different characters. And I'll ask you about that. But but you know, your first thought about it. Well, yeah, it's not a bad company, you know, um, to be included with. I, I find it uh, similar to Anna where um, it's honestly the best case scenario because we're talking about people who, um, who most certainly have the bona fides, right, um, who've proven that time and time again. And yet they, um, with our creators, they had such their own point of entry. They had such um, inspiration with this piece that we did have sort of carte blanche reign range over uh, what what we wanted to kind of accomplish with it as well. And so if the starting point is the Nero Gravitas and the rest is just open canvas, it's um, it's a pretty good situation to be in. That's good. And Emily, how about you? What are your thoughts? Um, well, I I knew that the Susan Stroman was smart enough, was going to be smart enough not to try to stick the movie on stage. Mm -hmm. She was going to reimagine the 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 kernel of the movie and then and sort of theatricalize from there. Um, having worked with her before, I, I know I know a little bit how she she thinks. And um, she had said that she was going. The, the plan was to really expand it and make the story more about New York yeah. than than just two central characters. So um, yeah. 
How about that idea? Uh, uh, you, you want to talk about being being part of a project that has legendary names? I mentioned Candor and Ebb in the introduction, and uh, I talked about Lin Manuel Miranda and some involvement in this. And and Emily, you brought me to my other question, which is Susan Stroman, you know, directing and choreographing. So uh, Hannah, how how about that idea of walking onto a stage and saying, "This is who I'm working with here." Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you grow up. I grew up from Delaware, actually in the same hometown as Susan Stroman. So we really? grow up looking to her as this legend that came from Wilmington, Delaware, in the hopes that one day you might be able to meet her. So it was a fun reunion of sorts for two Delaware gals to get together, but to have never worked together in the past. And it's easy because you trust her. You trust her wholeheartedly. And her vision is one you can't help but get on board with. Yeah. Colton, what do you think? I'm a stroke? Love her. Yeah. Famously. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Hard not to, I would imagine. She's just so, um, she's such a titan of this industry. So you already have your own uh, pretense when you come in, essentially thinking, oh, I I think I know what she's going to, she's sort of um, an auteur of stage, right? So like she has her own vernacular, she has her own signature. And so you kind of think like, okay, I, I think I know how I slot into that. And the really beautiful thing about getting to know her was again, that sort of um, that long leash that she actually gave us and said, I think, I think it's kind of one of the beautiful deft hands of directing when you can kind of make your signature happen and in the process, allow your actors to, uh, to find their own signature within it as well. And she's just sort of, I mean, she's supreme. She's, she's top of the list. Right. Right. I would think as someone who has not never been an actor, but what you just described, I would think would be the ideal scenario for you to find. Hey, Emily, let me come back to something you mentioned before, and that was the idea of making the, 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 the show about New York. And I saw in reading one of the reviews, they described this as a love letter to New York City and all of its possibilities. Um, what, talk about that notion of, of making this a love letter to New York. Yeah, I would I would say that's very that's a very accurate statement of how to describe this show, A Love Letter to New York. Um I know it it sort of centers on the idea of people come to New York with with an agenda. People come here with dreams, you know. And even if you're even if you're from New York, you're 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 living here with the purpose, you know. Um our show to me feels so much about people who hold their hands out to each other. In particular, it's it's set um, in 1946, right at the end of World War II, um, when the city is sort of putting itself back together. Um, and we're kind of living that right now, post-pandemic, a little bit. And so I think the show is sort of resonating on multiple levels for people when they when they come see it because of that. Um, and, and the fact that New York really, in the, in the world that we sort of put it in is sort of a small town in a way, you know, it's a big city, but it's also a small town and it's about people. Yeah. People holding their hands out to each other. Yeah, you do and, get that small town feel. It's interesting that you mentioned that it, the, the stories are so in, intricately interwoven, I think with mm-hmm. the backdrop of New York city as a small town, but I've got to ask you about, uh, about two things. And the first is, is the sets. 
<laughs> that are that are created there. Somebody jump in. One of you jump in and and just give a little description here because it's it's hard for me and people need to go to the theater for a lot of reasons to see this show. But one of them is to to see the the set design here. Somebody jump in here and talk about that. Well, I would please. No, no, no. Right. Well, I was just going to say it. Um, it's it's kind of its own standing achievement. Uh, this set. Yeah, it has its own legs. I'll just put it this way. Um, it somehow hits every single major landmark in the city, and sometimes it does so within the same number. So mm -hmm. um, it, it's a very cinematic, very sweeping set. Yeah. It's very artful. Mm -hmm. I heard it, and I heard it, or I saw it again, described as a travelogue, a New York <laughs> City travelogue. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I believe in the first number we have, a handful of hand-painted drops within 30 seconds that all fall one after the other and you're taken through the entire city it's a visual smorgasbord yeah and the one that again if if, if you are someone who is fascinated by photography and old photographs of new york city and there's an iconic one of iron workers uh, building a high rise and if you remember the photo they're sitting there having their lunch basically on these steel beams and yet and, and emily i know you're not dancing in this scene here but i'll let you describe it for us a little bit that scene a certain extent shows up in this show that's right that scene in particular turn into a musical number in our show. Fantastic. Yeah, who would have thought when you look at that photo, who would have thought that that would lend itself to a musical number, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, um, again, the, the, the music we talked about and and uh, the staging we talked about, the the, the dancing is fabulous. And we and and why would you expect anything less than that from Susan Stroman? But um, and I talk a little bit about about the dancing and and how it's so significant in this show. Well, when I got the call that I was going to be a part of New York, New York, I said, Stro, how much am I going to dance? Because I'm a strong mover. She said, don't worry, you'll do a twirl here and there. It'll be fine. But her choreography is so rooted in storytelling and truth that as someone who is often daunted by dancing, it came quite easily. And I watch these dancers every night and I, I tell them every night, I, I want to sing better from watching you. So thank you for what you bring. But it is... It's tremendous what she's brought and what she can tell, the stories she can tell through bodies. Yeah, well, we could talk for hours about this. Um, we're up against a time here, but uh, I, once again, as, as I said, um, New York, New York, just a magnificent show. We talked about nine Tony, total Tony nominations, including Best Musical. And I, it's, you know, what I say often is great theater is supposed to entertain us and make us think. And, and that's what this does in a lot of ways. So congratulations to all of you for the work that you've done and, and uh, looking forward to seeing this run for a long, long time. Thank you so much yeah. for all joining us. You all take care now. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.